0: Thanks, Harv. I want to remind you about the open house at our home after the service today, so um, if you want to spend a little bit less time than normal talking, that'd be great, but that's up to you, and um, I don't mean at our house, I mean here, and you know, people stay here late and talk, and go get lunch, and, and then come to our home if you want, we're Start off about 2.30 and then we'll go, you know, as late as people stay. Uh, If it's too late, we'll just go to bed and then you'll know that we're done. But uh, yeah, so please come and we'll look forward to having you with us. It's a good time of fellowship and there'll be plenty of uh, desserts and snacks and stuff like that. So we hope you'll join us. We're going to talk today about the mission of God, which we've been dealing with the past couple of weeks. And we'll wrap this up next week and actually come specifically to the New Testament. But we have been taking the past couple of weeks, including today, so three weeks, to talk about the mission of God. The first week we talked about the mission of God as found in the book of Ruth. And I think that's often missed. We tend to look at the book of Ruth as kind of the story of salvation and, and romance and so forth. But as we saw, as we explored the book of Ruth, really what the story is about is that God rescued this woman out of paganism out of worshiping false gods brought her to himself and then through her brought about king david through whom would come the messiah jesus christ so even these stories that we know well that we rehearsed when we were kids in sunday school contain echoes of what god had promised to bring redemption to his people last week we looked into kind of a mysterious book the book of ezekiel That's a book that people often tend to skip. Like, you know, if you do your yearly Bible reading, you get to the book of Ezekiel, and you come to this first chapter, and there's these burning wheels turning around and all these strange creatures, and, you know, it's just weird and odd, and we tend to skip it. But as we saw in the book of Ezekiel last week, there's these pictures of what God has promised his people, and they're beautiful. And if you take the time to explore them like a miner doing good, hard mining work, exploring the depths of them, you see great and precious promises there. We're going to continue with that today, but we're going to be a little bit more general today. We're not going to land on one specific text, which is typically what we do here. We're going to take kind of a bigger and broader overview of the story of Advent, which is really all of what the mission of God's about, the the coming of Christ, the advent of Christ is the expression, the fulfillment in many senses of what the mission of God was all about, to send one who would rescue us. But we have to ask ourselves some very basic questions, which is what I want to cover today. Why did Christ come and what was it that he accomplished? So we're going to talk today again about the mission of God. And the mission of God is primarily to redeem for himself for a people, to rescue a people for himself, so that he would be glorified by dispensing his grace upon them and that they would enjoy him for forever. So the mission of God is is very simple, and it's two major points. God receives for himself glory. He looks great when people receive his grace. So we get grace, and therefore joy, and he gets glory because he's the one who dispenses the grace. This is the mission of God, and truly the entire Bible is about that. We tend to look at the Bible in kind of piecemeal fashion, and by that I mean we tend to see the Bible as sort of parceled out, and here's a story here, and there's a story there, and here's a couple laws there, and there's a couple promises, and there's a couple more laws, and then it just becomes this mysterious heap of stuff, and we don't really know what to do with it. But I want to say to you that the Bible is one big story, and it's a story of the mission of God. And the mission of God reveals to us a whole lot about sin and a whole lot about grace. I want to say something to you, and I would like to see how you react to it, especially as good Protestant believers. We believe that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. We've been told that if we've been Protestants most of our lives. We talk about that all the time here, that we can't do anything to earn our salvation. But what if I were to say to you that in some senses that that formula, that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, is actually not quite complete. That we are actually saved also by works, How does that sit when I say that? Well, there should be some alarms going off in your head when I say that, if you have any sort of theological sense whatsoever. If you've grown up in a Protestant church, if you are an evangelical, when somebody says something like that, it should cause alarm bells to go off in your brain. But I want to prove to you that at least in some senses... Though we can hold fast to the formulation, to the doctrinal position that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, not of our own works, that in some senses, on the other hand, we are saved by works. I think I can prove that to you today. So we are, again, recapping God's mission as seen particularly in the Old Testament. Turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll start here briefly, and then we'll turn back to the Old Testament. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, listen to Paul's words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Prehistoric things are sort of thrilling. Prehistoric things are sort of mysterious and intriguous. And by prehistoric, I don't mean like people running around in loincloths with bats, like bashing giant lizards over their heads. I don't mean that kind of prehistoric. I mean before there was any human history, and before there was any creation, when God alone was. And there's certain things in, in Christian theology that kind of boggle your mind, right? The idea that, that God is a trinity, how do you explain that? Theologians for, for 2,000 years now have tried to come up with metaphors to illustrate to people, to Christians, what the trinity is. And, and every one of them, in one way or another, falls short. Another mind-boggling thing um, is Advent itself. When, when Jesus, the man, is lying there in the manger, did he have a sense of what was going on around him? Could he have spoken if he wanted to? I mean, that would have kind of freaked Mary and Joseph out, right? Um, did, could, could he have gotten up and walked right away? D- did Jesus ever get sick? I mean, there's all these sort of mysterious things about God and man being joined together. Another big huge mystery is eternity itself. There there never was a beginning for God. He he always has been. I mean, thinking about that almost makes your head hurt. So I think that prehistoric stuff like that pre that pre-creation stuff is sort of intriguing. And I think Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 10 give us a little glimpse as to what went on back then. And specifically here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10, Paul says to us that there was an agreement between the Father and the Son, and I would say the Spirit as well, to do something in particular. And that was to to bless people created in their image. So we've talked about this in the past, particularly when we talked about adoption a month or so ago. But in adoption, the the picture of adoption, we're shown in human story form what it's like to to rescue a child who needs a family. And we believe that this is a metaphor for what God does for us as spiritual orphans. He rescues us into his family. In fact, Paul talks about adoption here in Ephesians chapter 1. But we believe in the story of adoption that that God delighted in loving himself. That is to say, each member of the Trinity loved the other. But God is so loving and such a sharing God that he delighted in projecting his image onto these things we call people, humans, homo sapiens. And he delighted in dispensing his love upon them to the degree that even though he knew they would reject him, he would go the extra mile beyond creation to buy them back to himself. And so we get this little glimpse into the royal court, if you will, where the Trinity agrees together to not only create humanity, but to rescue some of rebellious humanity. So we would call this a covenant, that the Trinity covenants together to do something on behalf of humanity in which they will receive joy and through which the Trinity will receive glory. So we're going to talk today about the covenants. And there's three major covenants throughout the scriptures. Now, there's other smaller covenants, but they're sort of underneath the larger categories of the covenants we're going to talk about today. And through the covenants, we find sin and grace revealed. The first we would call the covenant of redemption. And this is the one we just read about in Ephesians chapter 1. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10, we find the covenant of redemption revealed for us. The covenant of redemption, very simply, is not a covenant necessarily between God and man. The covenant of redemption is a covenant between God, God, and God. Now, I've got to be careful there because we don't have three separate gods. We have one God manifested in three persons again, mind numbing. But they made a covenant together to rescue humanity. We find this also mentioned in passages like Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, and chapter 17, verse 8, in which it is said that there is a book of life in which people's names were written before the world was ever created. That demonstrates to us that this covenant had actually taken place, plans were made and set in motion. Through the covenant of redemption, we are shown that our God is full of grace. We'll come back to this at the end of our time today. But I want that to just sink in for a moment. That there exists a God that not only has the power to create. I mean, if, if that's all He was, that would, we would marvel at that. That would amaze us. If there was a God who could just speak the world into existence, and it all just came, plants, plants, flowers and trees and mountain peaks and animals and and the human body and, and photosynthesis and the changing of the seasons, such a God would would thrill us. But such a God would also frighten us because, because He can do that kind of stuff and we can't. And what if a God who could create like that revealed to us not only that He could create, but that He had a lot of laws we should keep? Well, the problem with us is that we don't like laws. We like to have our own way. And as you really take time to consider your life, you know you don't always keep those laws. And what if that God who could create and revealed that he was not only a creator but a lawgiver, what if he he said to us, you're only allowed to break one law per year? Well, the problem with that is that we break many, many laws every single day. There's a lot of sins that we're aware of and there's a whole lot of sins that we are not aware of. And it seems like all the time we're breaking laws. But what if there was a God who said, I've given a bunch of laws and I want you to keep them. If you don't keep them, you're going to be punished. But, but I've provided a remedy for that. In fact, the remedy will be that there will be one who will come who will keep all of those laws on your behalf. In his obedience the obedience of the law keeper who will keep every single law, every single moment of every moment of his life, his obedience can count for you. Then our marvel at such a God and frankly our fear of such a God would turn into into joy, into hope. That's what the covenant of redemption whispers to us. I think in evangelical circles we we tend to have this notion that doctrine is not important and that it's not very relevant. I'm going to do a little exercise here, which I don't typically do, but I want you to engage. Um, I think we have some problems sometimes whenever we, we come to worship services like this. and uh, A lot of times, like the worship leader, the guy who like leads the music, will get up, and ours don't do this, which I'm really, really thankful for. We'd fire them if they did. But, you know, you've been in these churches before where you, you get to the service ride and and everybody's kind of straggling in, and, and he's really hip and has great skinny jeans and like skull t-shirts and black rimmed glasses and super awesome hair. Again, our guys aren't like that. And, and usually they're wearing Chuck Taylors. And if you like to dress like that, I'm totally for you. But you know, And then they, they have their awesome guitar with like a skull painted on the side as well. And they say to you, let's all get up and be happy. You know, let, let's sing really, really loud. The problem with that is you don't all come in like that. First of all, a lot of you aren't even here whenever he says that at the beginning. And secondly, you don't feel like it, right? So here's my exercise today, okay? And I'm, just, I'm not picking on you. I'm just being funny, okay? Um, here's my exercise today. How many of you come today and you're actually really, really happy? I'll be honest. How many of you? Like five of you. Okay, let, let's go on. How many of you are kind of depressed today? Be honest. More hands went up then went up for being happy. How many of you are just kind of sad? How many of you are stressed? How many of you are anxious? Isn't that interesting? This is why worship leaders really, really annoy me, and again, why we have good ones here that we can put up with, is because they don't do that for us, because we come with this, this multitude of emotions and, and notions when we come together on Sunday. Sunday still feels kind of artificial to me. I, I love it and I think we have to do it because God calls us to assemble together. But doesn't it feel kind of artificial? It's different than the rest of our week. We do different things. You know, you don't you don't get in your Prius, go to work with your lanyard and sit in your cubicle, and then at 8 15 start singing with the people in the cubicle next to you. <laughs> you would be committed. Right, and then like twenty minutes later, you don't all kneel down together with your arms outstretched and pray to some invisible deity. And then your boss doesn't come around with a silver plate with like a velvet bottom and pass it around. I mean, it's not the way it works. Sunday Sunday's kind of different for us. It it shocks us out of our reality and it brings us to different realities. But the problem, of course, with all this is that we tend to worry, we tend to be anxious, we tend to be depressed, we tend to be sad. We tend to be very acutely aware that this God who, in fact, has given us a bunch of laws, He can't always be very pleased with us because we don't always do what He says. We're coming up on a new year, and on the one hand, it's kind of hopeful because we like new beginnings, we like second chances, but there's all kinds of things that happen at the beginning of the New Year. right? Like I can always tell when it's the New Year because our gym fills up for like two weeks. Um, I can always tell it's the beginning of the year because I get a bunch of emails saying, hey Lee, I need a new Bible reading plan. Right? These are the kind of things we do in the New Year and, and they're all great and I hope you do all those things. Go get on an elliptical and take your Bible app, do them at the same time, it's great, whatever. But, but the problem is by like February, at one point was like a lot of hope, then you feel really, really guilty. See, the covenant of redemption is not just this theological concept that's just for a bunch of professional theologians or a bunch of theological nerds. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10, reminds us that our God is full of grace. So, you know what? It's natural and it's okay to come to a place like this and say, I am depressed, I am sad. I am anxious, I am angry, I am stressed. But you don't come here every single week to be reminded only of how far short you fall. Now, we are called to worship, so that should come out of every time we approach God's word together. We should see some lack in our lives, and we should ask the Spirit to reveal that and to help us change. But the primary thing that we find in the covenant of redemption is that God speaks promise to us. And I think sometimes in evangelical in evangelicalism, we, we tend to kind of want to move beyond that and just say, tell me what to do. But, but this reveals to us part of the problem in the first place. Why do we get so stressed? Why are we so burned out? Why are we so angry and anxious and sad? It tends to be because our gaze is inward or horizontally outward. And by that I mean we tend to see fault within. And we tragically see perfection horizontally. But it's not the case. Your neighbor's not perfect. We tend to live in this comparative sense all the time, but people will disappoint you for good or for bad, and and you will disappoint you, but the covenant of redemption that the Trinity made together to dispense their almighty love on you should cause you to hope. So doctrine is relevant. But Let's move forward a bit. Let's talk about the covenant of works. Turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 2. So very, very simply, a covenant is an agreement, typically, between two parties. Biblically speaking, it can be between God and man. We just saw in the covenant of redemption that it's between God and God, if you will. And again, we've got to be careful with our language there. Sometimes in a covenant, God makes it with man, whether man agrees or not. So God sort of takes upon himself the the responsibility of, of performing his duties or his promises. The covenant of works was placed upon Adam and Eve in the garden, and it called them to a certain kind of behavior. Now, we do not find Adam in this sense saying to God, yes, I'll do it, but it's implied. And whether Adam responded affirmatively, it was still placed upon him because God was his sovereign, God was his creator. Look with me in verse 15. You're familiar with these verses. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So what's the covenant here? The word covenant is not used, but but the basic outline of a covenant is here. God gives expectations. Adam has no choice but to respond affirmatively. There will be blessings if Adam obeys. There will be curses if he does not obey. The rest of chapter 2 talks about how God made a wife for Adam and he would have told her the covenant, and they did pretty well, at least for a while. Seemingly, though, relatively quickly, things fell apart. You know the story. The serpent comes, tempts them with godhood, which of course was just an illusion. They couldn't be gods. They take the fruit of the one tree they couldn't eat. I mean, there's one law. There's not tons of laws. I think sometimes we break God's laws because we're just not even aware that they exist. But they had one. There was no confusion here. And I don't think it was because this fruit was necessarily shiny. You know, it's like whenever you go to the supermarket and, and you've got the organic fruit and then you've got like the non-organic fruit. And, you know, if you've been tricked by commercialism or whatever out there, you know you're supposed to eat the organic fruit. But the problem is, like, the non-organic fruit looks better. It has, like, that wax around it. It's kind of shiny and nice. And do you want to eat kind of a scrubby apple that's kind of brown and has, like, a wormhole, but it's been raised organically? Or do you want to, you know, eat the red delicious that's bright and shiny? You know? And it's not, I don't think that this was, like, a bright and shiny piece of fruit. I don't think there was, like, like, fruit juice oozing from it that would just you know, drove them nuts. It wasn't the fruit itself. It, it, was the, it, was the, it was the idea behind it. And Satan knew that if he could tempt them with, with the idea of elevated self-worship, if, if they could be the ones who could receive worship, if they could find fulfillment in, in others making much of them that they would give in. And they did, just like he had. God had created them to make much of Him, but Satan tempted them with others making much of them." It's the essence, really, of all sin. They gave in and, of course, they fell. God comes along and He curses them. We call this the covenant of works. So All the basic outlines of a covenant are here. There is a stipulation given by God to man. Man has no choice but to agree. There will be blessings if they obey. There will be curses if they do not. And, of course, because they did not keep the stipulation, curses came. We call this the covenant of works. In fact, in Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, Hosea states there that Adam broke God's covenant. So Adam is said specifically in the Bible to have broken a covenant. The problem, of course, for us is that we have been plunged into sin. We read a bit ago from Romans chapter 5 that there was this man named Adam, and he was considered the head of the race. In theological terminology, we call this federalism, but this is also a governmental term. In fact, we understand this because we live in a federal kind of government. We have 50 states that have covenanted together, this is very theological but also very governmental, we have covenanted together to exist as one nation. And we have a federal type of government. That is to say, we do not all make a pilgrimage to Washington, D.C., you know, once a year, all 350 million of us, and and cast our vote. It's not how it works. We elect representatives of various sorts, local, state, and federal representatives. And they they go to government for us, and they they vote on our behalf. And federally, we are represented there by, by certain leaders among us. That's what Adam was. He was a federal head. Now, this makes sense because he was the first man, but he was more than just the head of the organic race. He was not just the first homo sapien. He was also positioned to be the head of the race. Now, theologians differ over what it was that Adam would gain if he kept this law of God, to not eat of this tree. Would he have just kept his present state? Would he have stayed unfallen? Would he have stayed in perfect harmony with God? I think we can at least say that. Some theologians hold to that position. Some theologians ramp it up a bit. And they would say that Adam did not yet exactly have eternal life. Now, that is not to say that he would have died, but it is to say that he would have somehow existed in a state of impermanence, that he would have somehow persisted in a state where he might still have fallen. And if you compare that to our future now as New Covenant Christians, that's not as good as what we have, because we are promised a future where we not only will not fall, but we cannot fall. So how is it that the first man did not have as good a promises as we have? So some theologians say, and it's kind of a logical deduction. That for Adam to really have the best of God's promises, that he had to keep this law at least for a while. That there seemed to maybe be some sort of probationary period. And had he kept it for a certain time, that he would have actually won eternal life for the whole race. Now, we have to be careful here because we do not believe that salvation necessarily comes through works. And I think the way that we can sort of steer around this is that Adam had not yet fallen. He didn't have to be saved from something because he had not fallen. Simply what God did is to say, I want to bless you and reward you, but I want you to obey me. Now, the difference between Adam and the rest of us is that Adam actually had the ability to obey. We are born with an inability to obey God's laws, which is why we sin all the time. So what God is saying is, if you can can obey me, and you can obey me, if you will obey me, and you can and you should, that you will win for yourself eternal bliss and for the rest of the race. I know that's getting kind of deep and maybe mind-numbing as well. But here's the point. Adam was to do what God said, and he had the ability to do it, but he didn't do it. And therefore, curses came down on his head, and curses came down on the rest of our heads as well which is what Romans chapter 5 is about. The problem is, in every generation, you don't get a new federal head. It's already done. Adam stood for the whole race, not just a segment of the race, not just a generation of the race. And you may say, well, that doesn't seem very fair, but this is how God set it up. Equally, there is one who would come, which you read about in Romans chapter 5, who could be a second Adam. In fact, Paul calls him that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And his works can count for the whole race too. So if you don't think the first is fair, then you can't possibly think the second is fair. We'll get to that in a moment. But the covenant of works is still binding on us. That is to say, we still have an obligation to keep. We have an obligation to keep all of God's laws. The problem with that is we can't. We are born with with a sinful nature, which results in sinful actions. The covenant of works was not just for one generation. Its nasty effects has, has come to all of us. Which brings us to the third and perhaps most important covenant for us to consider as New Testament Christians, we call this the covenant of grace. In fact, we find this immediately talked about in Genesis chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So through them would come the race. He was the head, she was the mother of the race. But notice God does not just kick them out of the garden. He doesn't just give them curses. He clothes them in skins, which most theologians would say is a picture of what would later come through sacrifices in the Mosaic Covenant, and even more specifically, in the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Turn with me, please, to Ezekiel 11. We spent time in Ezekiel last week, but I want you to see that what we studied last week is incredibly important for our faith. Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 14 through 20. It's on page uh, 699 if you're having a little bit of trouble finding it. If you have one of the Bibles in the back, it'll be page 699, I should say. So the covenant of grace is what we're talking about here. God is basically keeping the covenant of redemption. So let me make this plain before we read in Ezekiel chapter 11. let Let me link these links of the chain together. In the covenant of redemption, we find that the Trinity agreed together to redeem some of humanity. But when God created, He made the covenant of works. He asked Adam to do one thing. If Adam would do that one thing, the whole race would exist in eternal happiness. But Adam did not do that one thing. He broke God's covenant and curses came. But God didn't leave it there. He promised grace. Why did he do that? He did that because of that covenant of redemption, which predated Adam's sin. So in so many senses, the covenant of grace is the actual historical outworking of the covenant of redemption. Look with me in verses 14 through 20 of Ezekiel 11. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord, to us this land is given for possession. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I remove them far off among the nations, and though I scatter them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while, and to the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. So they're going to go from punishment, they had been exiled, to blessing. They're going to come back to the promised land. When they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. This prophecy of Ezekiel found partial fulfillment when the people came back to the land, but it has never found full fulfillment. That is to say, God's people, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, by and large, the vast majority have not submitted to God, do not have new hearts, do not follow His law, and have not submitted to Him. Which means that this prophecy is yet unfulfilled, at least in some sense. And that is why Jesus came. Jesus came to to bring fulfillment to this promise. To make for himself, and we can say this, a new Israel. Paul calls us this in Romans chapter 9. We are spiritual Israel. We are sons of Abraham, Paul says there. This covenant has now begun to be fulfilled. I think we can believe from Romans chapter 11 that this prophecy will find full fulfillment in the future. For in Romans chapter 11, Paul says that one day all Israel will be saved. We talk a lot here about the already not yet. That is to say, God's promises have begun to be fulfilled, but they have not yet been consummated. Ezekiel chapter 11 is like that. When Ezekiel's people come back to the land, nothing changes that much about them. But when Christ comes in, things really actually do change. We sit here today as a new Israel, a new worshiping people, certainly imperfect. But the law no longer hangs over our heads written on tablets of stone, and we have an impossibility to obey it. No, what's happened is we have been given hearts of flesh God's law is now written on our fleshy hearts. And not only do we want to obey them, we, we can obey them. You see, the covenant of works actually has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 4 and I can prove that to you. Again, if you're following along in one of the Bibles we provide, that's on page 974. But in Galatians chapter 4, Paul, almost in passing, says something incredibly relevant for us in this sermon and for this season. In this context, he's reflecting upon the fact that everybody is born under the law. And the law is not bad, it's just insufficient to justify, it's insufficient to save us. I mean that the heir, verse 1, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers unto the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That is to say, before Christ, we were enslaved to the law. The law was to lead us along and help us to know God and to lead us to Christ, but it couldn't actually save us. That's Paul's point. But look in verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, dear Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. What do you mean we were slaves? Because Adam sinned, he and the rest of his progeny, the rest of his sons and daughters, were cast into slavery. But Jesus came, a son of Adam, a son of Eve, to keep the covenant of works, that which Adam did not keep and that which we cannot keep that is why I say to you that salvation is not only by grace, it is also by works. But of course, the beauty of all this, and frankly, this is grace, is that it's not your works that count. It's the works of Jesus that count. Notice in verse 4 here in Galatians 4, it is said that the Son of God is born under the law. Why? Because he was born of a woman. He was a real man. That's why he did not come down as this sort of glowing deity, as a full-grown man, or at least the apparition of a man. He didn't come on a white horse with white hair and a white robe and say, forgiven. That would not have taken care of the covenant of works under which we all exist, under which we're all doomed, under which we are slaves. This is why the virgin conceived. This is why she had this little boy. That's why he was real flesh and blood and bones. To be a man who would keep this law that the rest of his brothers and sisters could not keep. And the familial language is very relevant for us because he did it on our behalf. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2 says that Jesus, the Son of God, was not ashamed to call us brothers. And of course, my extension, sisters. And through this, through this familial love, he brought us back to the family through his obedience. You see, the covenant of works still existed over the heads of men. It still loomed large over us. Moses' tablets of stone, all of God's laws, cast a shadow, a pale over humanity. And it speaks doom to us. But another man came, a second Adam. One who had the ability to obey this law and he did it perfectly. And through keeping God's law, he ratified the covenant of grace. You can turn there if you'd like. But in Colossians chapter 2, a few pages over, listen to these words. having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It is as though you can see the hill of Calvary, and on it are nailed innumerable sheets of paper, And on those sheets of paper are recorded all of our sins. And it's voluminous for every single human. And the list seems endless. And when the lists are read out loud, it brings shame to the hearers. Because every name is found. And every deed bites to the heart. And every deed condemns. But the beauty of all those deeds for those who place their faith in Christ, who rest in him, is that they have been canceled. And that's what the covenant of grace is. It's a fulfillment of the covenant of works and a fulfillment of the covenant of redemption. So put all this together. The Trinity makes agreement to rescue humanity, knowing that the covenant of works would not be kept. But God keeps his promises despite the rebellion of humanity and comes along and sends God in flesh to keep the covenant of works that we could not keep so that we could receive grace once again and find eternal happiness with God. It was held out to Adam, but he took a paltry piece of fruit instead. And the rest of humanity has been living under slavery because of his foolish choice. practically speaking, that's what sin is. It's choosing the diminished. It's choosing the inferior instead of the superior, the better, the eternal. But God, knowing our weakness, stooped to us by taking on flesh, Jesus, the Son of God, keeping the law we did not and could not keep and extending to us the promise of So who is a recipient of this? As we see back in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How do we receive him? By faith. It is not what you do. So it is true that salvation comes by works, but not by yours. You see, you were cast into slavery by works. That's bad news. But you are saved by works. That is good news, but not your own. And this is where we get the big theological word we call imputation. That the works of another are credited to us. Adam's works are credited to us. That's bad news. But the good news is the works of Christ, his perfect works, are credited to us as well. If we will receive them by faith. If you have not done that, if you are resting in your own works, if you live under the illusion that somehow you can work your way back to God or find happiness through your own efforts, it's just that. It's an illusion. And doom hangs over you. But the beauty of the advent of Christ is that one was born of a woman, born under the law, and he kept that law. His grace can be credited to you. His righteousness, His works can be credited to you if you will trust Him. So what do we do with all this? I said to you at the beginning that doctrine is really, really impractical. It's really, really important for us. As we said earlier, if the covenant of redemption speaks grace to us despite our brokenness, The covenant of works, in some ways, brings us to despair. We're at the final word. There's a reason why we despair. There's a reason why we worry. There's a reason why we're stressed. There's a reason why we're sad. It's because this world has fallen. It's full of a bunch of people who are doomed. But that's not the final word. The covenant of grace, as I've already said, is the outworking and actual human history of God's plan of redemption. It's real. It's come to pass. And in this, we can continue to rest today. I've said to you throughout this short series this month that there's two basic things I want you to take away from every time we get together. The first is I want you to rest. I want you to trust in the grace of God. And it's okay to just sit here and be loved on. And that's what these covenants say to us. I love you. But likewise, they call us to great responsibility. Why did God give Adam a covenant of works? Because God wanted Adam to reflect how great he was. The Son of God has kept that covenant of works so that we can reflect once again how great God is. It's interesting that in Ezekiel chapter 11, as well as in other places where the covenant of grace is promised, that it talks about law still. But that law is not external anymore, it's internal. We can keep it and we want to keep it. The covenant of works for us now is no longer scary because it has been fulfilled for us. And we have been rescued and redeemed and renewed so that we can once again worship God and do what he wants. So as we read the Bible and find all kinds of laws, we are not doomed by them. In fact, we can be thrilled by obeying God and enjoying him. And because Jesus has kept them for us, we follow in his stead, not just by his example, but by his sustenance. In John chapter 15, Jesus tells us to abide in him. So we no longer... We not only follow His example, we are sustained by Him and empowered by Him to actually keep these laws. So read God's Word and and don't don't be doomed, don't feel doomed by these laws, this covenant of works because they no longer hang over your head if you have trusted Christ to condemn you. They guide you along so you know how to please God and enjoy Him. And likewise, the covenant of grace calls us to rest. But I think it also calls us to be ambassadors. You see, those of us who exist in this new humanity with a new federal head, the one who has stood for the race, the one whose righteousness can be given to us, to his, to his family, we are ambassadors for him to proclaim his goodness, his, his graciousness to the world around Have you done that recently? Have you taken the opportunity to take someone who yet exists under the doom of the covenant of works and speak to them the words of Jesus that grace is possible for them as well? That they can pass from death to life, that their transgressions can be removed, and that the righteousness of the righteous one can be credited to them. Have you told anybody about that recently? I challenge you, very practically, this may seem very simplistic and kind of uh, unneedful, but I challenge you, who are you telling about this? If the best story that was ever written is that there is a trinity up there who loved us enough to make promises despite the fact that we would fall, and then actually when we did fall, he followed through and provided grace. And everything he did for good can be credited to you even though you didn't do it. If that's, if that's true, that's the best story that ever was. And if we exist under Jesus as our federal head and, and everything he did counted for us, even though we never would have done it and we don't deserve it, that's really good news. Who are you telling about it? I challenge you as we get up and sing in just a moment to pray. Ask God to bring people to your mind and then to orchestrate situations where in the coming days you can speak of this good news to other people. So, who comes to mind? Who do you know who desperately needs this? We talk about, we share the things that matter most to us. We're going to see this very soon with our children. Um, our children, most of them, are going to receive several nice gifts for Christmas. They will get together with their friends and family and inevitably the question will come, what did you get for Christmas? And if we were kind enough to get something on their list, they are going to delight in sharing it. They delight it in looking forward to it. They delighted in unwrapping it and they delight in actually playing with it or doing something with it. They like to talk about the things that are important to them. What we talk about What we share in our discretionary time reveals what is important to us. So if it's true that these covenants speak grace to us, then we should revel in that and rest in that. And then I challenge you to depend upon the Spirit, to pay attention to the situations that he springs into your path, and to share this important best news so that people too can find rest and hope. So practically, these covenants are really relevant for us, I hope that you'll take time to think through them. And I've just only begun to tease out some of their practical implications. So today we rest that God has loved us. And today we are challenged to worship God, which is why he created us in the first place, and to share his mission, his mission of grace, with the world around us. Let's stand. We're going to pray together, and we'll sing our last song.